I'm joined by Megan Krakwa, winner of a 2023 Australian Mental Health Prize, recognising and celebrating outstanding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health leadership at a national or community level. First of all, Megan Krakwa, congratulations and welcome to NITV Radio. Thanks, Bertrand. Really happy to be here. Prior to winning uh, this accolade, you are already known as a First Nations rights beacon, having pioneered so many programs that have really made an impact. But I'd like to begin our conversation looking back at your work, especially in addressing the devastating uh, suicide rates among First Nations youth. Firstly, I'll just mention this. Everyone that works in this space, they're a winner. It's a really difficult area to work, work in, particularly when you're dealing with life and death and you're trying to help people and work through the intense psychosocial supports which is needed to some of our most marginalised, vulnerable and, and silenced people. So in terms of this type of work, I've been doing it for a long time, um, very much half a decade working with the most marginalised, vulnerable and voiceless, working with issues around deaths in custody, child removals, incarceration, suicidality, homelessness and the likes. Myself and my colleague Jerry Georgiatis, we've worked with about 27,000 people right across the country in the last four years. Um, a lot of things that we've done in terms of law reform, um, challenging systems which hurt people, which oppress people, and that is not good. So we always fight for equity. Um, that is really quite important because, you know, we all deserve to live our best lives. And too often I see too many people living in third world akin conditions in the lucky country of Australia, which is the 12th richest economy in the world, living in poverty, dealing with one issue after the next, not having any way forward, not having any hope whatsoever. So the approach that we use is the intense psychosocial support, the assertive outreach, which is 24-7. At the end of the day, people need people, and that's what we're here to do, just very much elevate the issues of the deficit truth to ensure that it's on the national agenda. It has to be said that uh, you are well known for your holistic approach to mental health, not only providing uh, psychological counselling, but also addressing issues like uh, financial hardship. And you highlight that uh, the socioeconomic disparity as a cause for the shocking high suicide rates and uh, mental health conditions within uh, First Nations communities. Oh, it's a reality. Right across the... I am the director with the National Source of Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project. It's a voluntary effort. Right across the country, 40% of First Nations people fall below the poverty line. In Western Australia, it's 60%. In the Northern Territory, it's 75 to 80%. So a lot of our people fall below the poverty line. So if you can think of the poverty line, about $470 a week, a lot of our people get that on a fortnightly basis if they're on Centrelink. So it is very much a poverty narrative. Um, a lot of, in terms of First Nations people in relation to suicides, has gone from 1 in 23 to 1 in 16. That is absolutely horrendous. It is a crisis of our time for, the, for people under the age of 40 years old. It's the leading cause of death. And that very much is consistent with the, the National Closing the Gap Strategy in terms of the Productivity Commission that came out about three months ago. 19 closing the gap targets, of the 19 closing the gap targets, 15 are not reducing, and of the 15, two are widening even further, and that's incarceration, also child removals. Child removals in 1997, 
it was 2,000 children, black kids in care. That was at the time of the Bringing Them Home report. In uh, 2008, the Prime Minister at the time, Mr Rudd, gave the apology to the generation, 8,000 black kids in care. Today, it is 23,000 black kids in care. So we've gone from one in three to one in two since 1997, and that is unacceptable. That leads a lot of people to have broken hearts and hurt, trying to deal with a system of child removals, the impression they hurt, the surveillance, the constant monitoring, the way that it makes people feel in terms of their helplessness and the various barriers that these big institutions, for example, Department of Child Protection and its counterparts across the country, it is a $6 billion corporation, a $6 billion corporation. Only 17% is spent on family supports, and that is unacceptable in today's age. Wow, wow, wow. Those are staggering numbers uh, you just gave there, and... Uh so many systemic issues that need to be addressed. Just going back to something like uh, deaths in custody alone, uh, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody was more than 30 years ago and uh, still a lot of the recommendations uh, are yet to be implemented. Well, that's exactly right. It's a state, it's a territory, it's a federal issue. In terms of the uh, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, the 339 recommendations back in 1991. We've seen over 530 dear souls rest in peace pass away in custody. And it's the same story in many situations. People pass away, sadly. And then families go to coronial inquests. There's protests. But there doesn't seem to be any collective response in terms of addressing this, in terms of implementing all the recommendations from the Royal Commission. One of the recommendations, for example, is to remove all ligature points from the prisons. That still is not the case. I used to work with the prisons and I've seen where um, ligature points still are. I've seen where a young boy who's 19 years old who passed away in a prison, ligature points still remain there. So working with the family, helping the family, supporting the family in every single aspect, showing that love, showing that kindness, being there to help with Centrelink, counselling, just going to the person's house on a weekend, hey, how are you going? Telephone calls, then being able to make contact with me on Facebook. I keep it real and basically to rep- you know, very much re- reflect the deficit discourse, but also how our family need that support. Right across the country, we've got over you know, a couple of hundred Aboriginal medical services and, and they, they do a fine job, but they take care of the masses, that's the reality. But a lot of the services, they close at five o'clock. Our community needs something more responsive and that needs to be 24-7, going out to the homes, helping de-escalate situations. We've had situations over in Western Australia where a young lady had come out of prison. She had challenges in terms of her mental health. She is no longer here today. She was shot by the police. So in terms of being there for people, coming out of prison, people who have had children removed, people that are living on the streets, living homeless. It is an absolute dire circumstance and situation that is very much hurting our people today. So this is a lot of the work that we do. We're very friendly, we're very kind, we work through people's issues in such a way where it's where it's kind, it's loving, it's, it's supportive, it's really about providing that practical assistance, a radical empathy, the radical transformation that is really important, particularly when you're trying to save lives, improve life circumstances and set about positive pathways. 
right across the country, a lot of our people, we have that unaddressed trauma. Unaddressed trauma, if it's not validated, it can't be disabled. So notoriously, a lot of our families, we're big families. So for example, I'm one of 13, I'm the youngest in our family. Yeah, we just have so many um, people living in those circumstances right now, brothers and sisters, and at the end of the day, we're all brothers and sisters of the human family. So a lot of the services that are there, they're doing some really beautiful work, but sometimes they just don't have the mandate or the remit to respond adequately to um, our people's needs. Yeah. You mentioned that you work at the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project. And uh, this is a project that you actually established with your colleague, uh, Jerry Giorgatos. Is it a 24-hour helpline as well? Look, I'll respond all hours of the night, 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. I'll take the messages, I'll take the phone calls. Um, but that's voluntary. Wow. That's, that's a voluntary service. I've left, well, you know, I've left well-paid positions to come into this space because I see the unmet need. And the unmet need... It is hurting our people, it is killing our people, it is leaving our people in such dire circumstances that a lot of our brothers and sisters feel like they've got no way forward. We have brothers and sisters coming out of the prison system, many without identification, many without housing, many without that um, that support. We see people go into the prison system and not get not be able to do the programs and and that's really heartbreaking. I've worked up at Acacia Prison alongside of Jerry and there were three Aboriginal people in um, in a one year period. We started working there and we've taken self harms down from thirty three to three within one quarter. It's about spreading the love, showing people that you care. Um, Banksy Hill Detention Centre. That's the only youth detention centre in Western Australia. Right across the country, there's 132 castle estates of that. There's 17 youth detention centres. Banksy is one over in Western Australia. We were asked to go and work at Banksy Hill at the height of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, all the service pulled out except for one. There was a new program that went in. And then there was us who worked primarily with the young girls. At the time we walked into Yeda, that's the compound for the young girls, there was 18 young girls. By the time we left, eight weeks later, there was only seven. No one came back. Wow. So it's about working with the young ones. And we chose to work in the compounds. We didn't want an office away from the girls. We wanted to work and be there and support them and work out exactly what was going on. But then we'd also provide a support to the families on the outside. So, of course, when the young girls come out, um, we um, strengthened their supports so they had less chance of returning back into um, Banksy Hill Detention Centre. So you've uh, reduced the recidivism and uh, reduced yeah. the numbers, which is uh, pretty good. Would I would one call the kind of intervention some kind of uh, therapeutic justice or how would one qualify it? Um, therapeutic, restorative justice, restorative works. Yeah. It's, about, it's a very simple approach. Yeah. And the simple approach is this. If you have a child, if you have a niece, you have a granddaughter, if they were going through some problems, you would try your best as much as humanly possible is to work out what the issue is to help them and support them yeah. and to take those issues away. You know, a lot of those kids um, that was at Banksy Hill, I treated them no different from how I treat my own child. I'd sit there, I'd yarn, I'd talk to them, I'd work out what the issues were and then we'd work out a plan on how we could sort it out. The thing is, it wasn't just about talking, it was about listening, it was about hearing, it was about practical solutions, ways forward, employment, training. The thing is, 
once you start believing in a person, it gets to a point where they start to believe in themselves and you give that real beautiful hope and that way they become an inspiring story and with Aboriginal people, we do have big families. So a lot of said with some of the families that individuals that we've worked with, well, if they can do it, we can do it. So you can inspire hope. You can make change. It's all about being kind and being loving and navigating a person who is in a real dire circumstance to help them realise their beautiful possibility and their potential so they can live their best possible lives. That's what life should be about. Too often we see mothers and fathers that are burying their children to suicide. We aren't put on our put on this earth to bury our children, but too often that we do, and it's heartbreaking. So these are the issues that we deal with, and these are a lot of the families that we support, our brothers and sisters, and we highlight the deficit truth. So that's why I do a lot of media with the families. So, for example, with Banksia Hill, we know that there's been 10,000 children that have been in there since 1997, and there's been a hundred dear little ones that have passed away since leaving Banksia Hill. And that is absolutely alarming. It's catastrophic. It's hurtful. And it leaves the families with so much hurt and pain in their lives forever. And we know that in terms of Banksia Hill Detention Centre, again, 40% of the children that are in that prison are in the care of the Department of Child Protection. So there's all these issues that's impacting on us mob there and we must always recognise that it is a poverty poverty narrative. The government, if they want to fix, if they want to help, if they want to support in ways that should, they need to ensure that there's poverty alleviation. If you fix the poverty, 80% of the issues will go too. I'd like to conclude on that, but uh, I think it's better I give you an opportunity to uh, say something we may have missed that you would like to bring to the attention of our listeners. For sure. We're all brothers and sisters of the human family and we must do what we can, particularly those who are in positions of power and positions of influence. Never forget about the grim reality. Right now I'm in a remote community and I've been in remote communities all this week and it's different circumstances. There's about 1,200 remote communities across the country. Of the 1,200 remote communities, there's about um, 120,000 people. So we must recognise that in terms of Aboriginal people, we are not homogenous. There are very different circumstances depending on whether it's regional, remote, urban, but we must always be kind. Someone like a Pat Dudgeon, who's the first Aboriginal psychologist across the country, I'm very humble and thankful that she nominated me for this award because with this award basically comes the opportunity to bring to the attention of the Australian people, the Australian audience, some of the real issues that's hurting our people, that's killing our people, that leaves our people suffering. We must always remember that it's, it comes back into generational trauma. Trauma, if it's not unaddressed, can kill. The voice to Parliament, I was the advocate, I was a person that said no at the beginning and I had all my reasons for saying no. I basically said it couldn't compel change, it couldn't it was already racist in so many respects. It wasn't going to make too much of a difference. I said that there wasn't a lot of our families that were involved in it. But after I'd been at a funeral, one little person and another one who'd passed away who I'd been with a family, both lost a suicide at very tender young ages, I changed my mind in relation to the voice of Parliament and now I'm voting yes. I see that... There is no central body across the country to deal with all of our issues in terms of child removals, incarceration, 
environment and so forth, at least if we have a central body, we can start tackling the issues in a coordinated and responsive approach. And that I see as a good thing. Megan Krakwa, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio and congratulations again on uh, winning uh, this uh, accolade. Amazing. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And to your listeners, God bless. Thank you.